Okay, this is on. So, our first reading is from Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 13. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they were all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as the same of them were, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We shall not commit sexual immorality as it, some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and, they, and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. We all have goals. We want to matter. We want to be important. We want to have freedom and power to pursue our creative work. We want respect from our peers and recognition for our accomplishments. Not out of vanity or selfishness, but out of an earnest desire to fulfil our personal potential. So says Ryan Holiday. He's an entrepreneur. And that explains a lot. That mindset That outlook on life is exactly what you would expect from a successful, go-get-it, making-things-happen kind of personality. And I agree with him. We're wired in such a way that it matters to us to feel important, to have the freedom to pursue our own creativity. That actually is part of what it means to be made in the image of God, who, as our creator, made us with the capacity to be creative ourselves. It matters to get respect for who we are and recognition for what we achieve. It's really hard if nobody pays any attention to what we do or values who we are. So these are good desires. But Holiday gives us a warning. We need to keep an eye on what motivation lies behind them. Because if these desires originate in vanity or selfishness, then something's wrong. So what's the difference between a good desire and a bad desire? Well, a lot of it has to do with what's fueling that desire in our hearts. If the driving force behind what I want is my own vanity or my own selfishness, then that desire ceases to be good. Not because what I want is bad, but because of why I want it. So how can I tell whether I want something selfishly or just out of a good desire to fulfill my own personal potential? One of the litmus tests is my attitude to other people. If I'm acting out of vanity, I will not willingly give to others the respect and recognition I want for myself. I will always want the assurance that I matter more than they do. 
So I'll always jealously protect my own freedom, even if that means curtailing theirs and putting them down so that I can do well. So yes, we all need to matter. We all need to be important. We all need to have the freedom and power to be creative, to have respect and recognition from others. But if I am not prepared to give that to other people, to extend to them the generous acceptance and affirmation I know I need to flourish as a person, then that's a clear sign that my motivation is flawed. And that corrupts what would otherwise be good desires. In Corinth, people didn't just want good things for bad reasons, they set their hearts on bad things. Paul warns them they shouldn't do that. He uses the account of the Israelites wandering through the desert to make this point. The Israelites were a hapless lot, constantly setting their hearts on the wrong things, and none of them, with just two noble exceptions, ever made it out of the wilderness into the promised land. Instead, as Paul puts it quite vividly, their bodies were scattered over the desert. So what did they desire? What did they set their hearts on? Firstly, some of them were idolaters, setting their hearts on eating and drinking and indulging in pagan revelry, as the NIV puts it. The literal term Paul uses for pagan revelry is simply play. They were fooling around, giving in to unbridled desire. They just engaged in unrestrained self-indulgence. There was an uninhibited pursuit of pleasure for its own sake. And the trouble with desire when we take the brakes off like that is it can start to run rampant and become uncontrollable. So we end up being driven by what we want, by an insatiable desire for more, a desire which becomes harder and harder to satisfy. In 1799, a minister called Timothy Dwight preached a sermon in which he talked about desire. I'll quote from him at length. He said, Desires indulged grow faster and farther than gratifications extend. Ungratified desire is misery. Expectations eagerly indulged and terminated by disappointment are often exquisite misery. But how frequently are expectations raised only to be disappointed? And desires let loose, only to terminate in distress. The child pines for a toy. The moment he possesses it, he throws it by and cries for another. When they're piled up in heaps around him, he looks at them without pleasure and leaves them without regret. He knew not that all the good which they could yield lay in expectation, nor that his wishes for more would increase faster than toys could be multiplied, and is unhappy at the last for the same reason at the first. His wishes are ungratified. Still indulging them and still believing that the gratification of them will furnish the enjoyment for which he pines, he goes on, only to be unhappy. And men, says Dwight, are merely taller children. Honour, wealth, splendour are the toys for which grown children pine, but which, however accumulated, leave them still disappointed and unhappy. God never designed that intelligent beings should be satisfied with these enjoyments. By his wisdom and goodness, They were formed to derive their happiness and virtue from him alone. Moderated desires constitute a character fitted to acquire all the good which this world can yield. He was prepared, in whatever situation he is, therewith to be content, has learned effectually the science of being happy. Such a man will smile upon a stool while Alexander the Great sits weeping on the throne of the world. So... Does it make a difference if we make God the source of our happiness and virtue as Dwight recommends? Finding our contentment in God means that we're not always hankering after more. The knowledge that he accepts us for who we are liberates us into being able to enjoy what we have without needing to feed the flames of our own insecurity. If 
we worship what we desire, then it is a plain and simple truth that worshipping anyone or anything to the exclusion of God will always leave us dissatisfied. Because there is a danger that the more we set, we hearts, the more we set our hearts on what is imperfect, the more we end up wanting more or wanting something or someone else instead. So beware of idolatry, setting your hearts on things that aren't God and things that aren't satisfy. Paul's second warning is that they should not set their hearts on sexual immorality. Immorality like that is about, again, giving free rein to bodily desires rather than having a right and proper expression of loving commitment as the context of a secure and loving relationship. Outside of that context, sexual activity can easily degenerate into making someone else's body, making use of someone else's body for my own gratification. And that in turn can degenerate into exploitation. In, this, in the news this week was the report, Voices from Syria, which exposes the level of exploitation of vulnerable girls taking place out there on a regular basis. Women or girls under 18 being married in rapid succession, sometimes only for a few hours at a time, to a whole succession of officials, so providing sexual services in exchange for meals. Distributors asking for the telephone numbers of women and girls, giving them lifts to their houses to take something in return, or obtaining distributions in exchange for a visit to their home, or in exchange for spending a night with them. The more a girl gives to a distributor, the more aid she gets, says the report. Why does the Bible come down hard on sexual immorality? It's to avoid today's cultural perception that any girl has the potential to be sexually available. And if her availability matches my desires, then why not? But if my desire entails using somebody else for my own gratification, rather than honouring them as a person worthy respect because they are made in the image of God, then something is seriously wrong. And my readiness to indulge my desires are the roots of the problem actually. Then he moves on to testing the Lord, referring to the episode where the Israelites spoke against God and against Moses, complaining, there's no bread and no water, and we detest this miserable food that God is giving us. We want to go back to Egypt. They weren't getting their own way, and they were throwing their toys out of the pram because of that. There are some people who can't cope with frustrated desires, who find it very difficult or even impossible to take no for an answer without really losing it in the process. Sometimes there can be a degree of immaturity in the assumption that God's purposes have to conform with what I want. With natural fact, if our desires do not correspond to God's will, then he does sometimes say no. And we need to learn to cope with that. Sometimes he refuses to give us what we want, what we really, really want. Part of Christian commitment is submitting our desires to God's will and being prepared to trust him because, after all, God is committed to us. I read a fascinating article the other week by Kathleen Rochester who suggests that the Israelites found it difficult to trust God because of their historic experience of being enslaved by a harsh, unreasonable and unrelenting taskmaster. So that whatever God did for them was never enough to assuage their deep-seated insecurities. Sometimes when our desires are rooted in a deep-seated sense of personal inadequacy, nothing is ever good enough. Sometimes when we find it difficult to accept ourselves, we can instinctively try and make ourselves unacceptable to others with destructive consequences. Whatever we want or think we want, our greatest need actually is to begin to learn how to trust others 
and to take responsibility for our own lives. Those are hard lessons to learn, but we learn them as we move away from testing God towards being able to trust him. And the last warning Paul gives that is that they shouldn't grumble. Chris Knights makes the point that grumbling and complaining may not seem like the worst of sins to us, but that may be more an indication of our own perspective than God's. For grumbling, gossiping and murmuring can be hugely destructive of both the community and its leadership. He quotes Patrick Berry as saying, it's underhand and quickly becomes part of the underlife of a community. It destroys confidence, it affects others. In the end, it affects the spirit of a whole community. For individuals, it can become increasingly addictive and they develop a corresponding blindness to the harm they're doing to themselves and others. Grumbling originates in a lack of contentment with what we've got. And we can be so caught up in a sense of being deprived of what we want and not having what we want that we lose sight of the immense value of what we have already. And any sense of contentment goes out of the window to be replaced by a permanent sense of dissatisfaction. The Dalai Lama put it well, when you are discontent you always want more, more, more. Your desire can never be satisfied. But when you practice contentment, you can say to yourself, oh yes, I already have everything I really need. So desire can be a good thing, but it can be a dangerous thing if it's pursued, indulged, allowed to get out of control, or if it originates in selfishness, inadequacy, or it robs us of the capacity to be content. Desire can be good if it comes out of a place where we are secure in who we are and in our relationships with others and we set our hearts on growing ourselves and enabling others around us to grow in confidence and ability and maturity. Being okay with who we are means we're able to keep our desires under control and they're not free then to exploit our weaknesses or our pride and so become destructive. Knowing God can be the key to being okay with who we are. Knowing we're accepted not for what we have, not for what we achieve, but for who we are by his grace and in his love. And that knowledge provides a firm platform for us to set our desire on good things, things that conform to his will, things that are good for us and those around us, and originate not out of a sense of our own inadequacy or lack, but from a desire to do well and be our best for his glory, to make the most of the life that he's given to us. So what are you going to set your heart on in 2018? And what's your motivation for doing so? What's driving your desire? Perhaps I can leave you with some words from Psalm 37. Simply says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Amen. So let's close by singing together All I Once Held Dear Built My Life Upon 646.